Well, open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 4. And this is a, um, a one-off message. It's kind of a completion to the Christmas season that we've had and all that we've been doing over the last several weeks. And we were um, <clears throat> doing some different things yesterday in the house in the quietness of uh, pre-Christmas. And we had some Christmas carols playing in the background. And, and I was just reminded of how unscriptural and how unspiritual so many of the popular Christmas carols are in our world today. And it, it, it begs the question, what does the world actually celebrate at Christmas? So this, this, this celebration of Christmas in the world is an interesting thing to me because I don't know exactly what it is that they celebrate. So if you listen to the popular Christmas carols, Christmas is about Santa bringing toys to children all over the world. And if you listen to these Santa carols in the right order, he's coming to town. You might see him kissing mommy under the mistletoe. And you better be careful because he might run over grandma with a reindeer. So there's a lot going on here with Santa coming to town. So in the world, the joy of Christmas is found in the fulfilled dream of a white Christmas. And I can't count the number of white Christmases I've not had in my 50-some years, or the joy is in being home for Christmas. And how many people can't be home for Christmas? Or it's roasting chestnuts over the open fire. But what if you don't like chestnuts? And what if you don't have a pit outside that you can roast chestnuts over? Christmas isn't the same. So the world talks about the Christmas spirit which probably means being kind or generous or being considerate towards other. The other 51 weeks of the year don't really matter. It's Christmas, so go get you some of that Christmas spirit. But where do you get it from? It's never on sale. I've never seen a sale for Christmas spirit ever. I've never seen an advertisement for it. But we are compelled, we are instructed to go get some Christmas spirit. In the world, Christmas fills you with joy over what you gave or what you received. Or Christmas was not so joyful because you couldn't give as much as you desired or you didn't get exactly what you wanted. So as Christmas winds down and you look at the mess and you very quickly see the discarded or the broken toys and you examine the bill... Perhaps you wonder, what was it really all about? What was all the commotion about? (laughs) I grew up in a non-Christian home, and I can tell you what Christmas was always about. It was about the bounty of toys underneath the tree. And I was so blessed to have two uncles who provided our Christmas to my single mother and her five boys that we always had a wonderful Christmas because what we were looking for was generally satisfied in the material things that are centered around the world's celebration of Christmas. You know, if we're not careful as Christians, we can get sucked into that same mindset that if we aren't home or if it isn't white or if we can't give as much as we would have liked, that the joy of Christmas just doesn't seem to be as significant as we hoped it would or it used to be in times past. Well, the reality is this. The gift of Christmas is right here. Right down there. 
It's that candle. It's what it represents and what it signifies. It's what we will observe together at the close of our service and the observance of communion together. Christmas is about Christ. And if you take Christ out of Christmas, what do you got? More. Spanish moss. More. That's all it is. So we're going to look in the book of Galatians. We're going to look at this little passage that will describe for us the true joy in Christmas, regardless of any material thing. Here's what we read from the Apostle Paul in God's Word to the church at Galatia. Chapters 4, verses 1 through 7. Now, as I read this, you're going to probably scratch your head a little bit and go, now wait a minute. I don't know where we're going here. That's okay. This is really an incredible passage, and you'll get it when we get in the end of our reading, but the preface of that is very, very important. Now, I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of a son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now, salvation is a prominent theme all throughout the book of Galatians. And in this section, Paul is going to draw from the culture and the customs of the day that the people he was writing to would have been very familiar with. He compares the position and the privileges of a child to those of a servant with the figures of child and servant representing life under the law and the figures of an adult and a son representing life in Christ. So there is a contrast in the illustration that Paul is going to give. So this illustration continues to contrast man before salvation, when whether Jew or Gentile, he is under God's law, and man after salvation when he is in Christ. So our passage will have two main points. The first one is this. It is the preparation for sonship. So we have to remember, Paul is talking to Jews and to people in the culture of Rome, and he's drawing upon their own understandings and their own experiences, and he's going to provide this illustration to make an incredibly important point. Verse 1 again, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. So we would read that, we go, now wait a minute, why isn't the child any different from the slave or the servant? So the first part of this illustration is the child. Now, this doesn't mean a lot to us because we don't understand the culture and the customs of first century Roman life. So Paul is writing to something, they, writing to people with which this is very familiar to them. And so here's what we need to be reminded of. In the ancient world, the division between childhood and adulthood was much more definitive than it is today. So in modern Western civilization especially, we have this period of time known as 
adolescence. It's a very prolonged period of life. It can last anywhere from 5 to 15 years, maybe even longer, and it depends upon the child and it depends upon the family. So for example, adolescence is thought to begin at around puberty and at puberty, physiological changes begin to take place and this little child begins to grow into something that doesn't yet look like an adult and doesn't really act like a child and they begin this period of adolescence. So when they become 17 or 18, they may move out of the house. They may join the military. They may go off and get married. And so that prolonged period of adolescence is brought to a very quick end. But what is more normal is these children go to college and there's another four years, and then they go to grad school, and there's another two to three years, and then they can't find a job, so they come back home, and they try to figure out what life is about, and what am I going to do, and there's another two or three years. So this period of adolescence is anywhere from five to 15 years, but in the ancient civilizations, and in the period with which Paul is writing to, it didn't happen like that. Not at all. Although ancient customs varied, there there was usually a prescribed age when a child, and most especially a boy, would officially come of age and take on the privileges and the responsibilities of adulthood. Most likely, that boy was excited about the privileges and the responsibilities. And Western civilization, in this prolonged period of adolescence, when it's time to go off to college or move out of the house, kids find themselves to be ill-prepared, and they are absolutely frightened at the prospect of leaving the nest and growing up and becoming an adult. So until the age of 12, a Jewish boy was under the direct and absolute control of his father. But at the bar mitzvah, observed on the first Sabbath after his 12th birthday, the boy's father would pray this, Blessed be thou, O God, who hath taken from me the responsibility of this boy. You see that? He's no longer mine. He is yours. And the boy would pray, Oh my God and God of my father, on this solemn and sacred day, which marks my passage from boyhood to manhood, I humbly raise my eyes unto thee and declare with sincerity and truth that henceforth I will keep thy commandments and undertake to bear the responsibility of my actions towards thee. Now, they probably didn't understand all that that meant, but that was the declaration they made. The line in the sand had been drawn and they were were now considered and treated as adults. In ancient Greece, a boy was under his father's control until the age of 18. At that time, a festival called Apatoria would take place, and the boy was declared an aphibos, which was a type of a cadet with special responsibilities to his clan or city-state for a period of two years. So during the coming-of-age ceremony, the boy's long hair would be cut off and offered to the god Apollo. Now, in the Roman ceremony called Toga Virilis, boys would take their toys, and at a very similar ceremony, girls would take their dolls, 
and they would offer them in a sacrifice to the gods as a symbol of putting childhood behind them. They were being declared as adults. And so this illustration of a child or a minor coming of age was therefore easily understood by both Jews and Gentiles to whom Paul was writing. Now, we don't get all that, do we? Because we don't understand it that way. So they were all aware that as long as the heir was a child, the boy in the father's home, he was under conditions that did not differ at all from those of a servant within the father's household. They grew up as a son or as an heir, yet they were treated exactly like a servant would be treated. As a son and as an heir of all his father's possessions and duties, a boy was the potential and rightful owner of everything that belonged to his father. But the author William Hendrickson points out, he was only an heir du jour, not an heir de facto. He was an heir by legal right, but not yet in fact. So this is the beginning part of the illustration, is the child, and the child is under the control of, verse 2. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So while a child, he was under the care and control of guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So families who had servants would assign their most trusted servants to the responsibility of caring for this boy or this heir. That that word guardian is a general term for a person who cared for underage boys. And the term manager or house steward, as we've looked at in recent weeks, was one who would give care over the child until he was grown. Along with a tutor or the teacher, those family servants would have virtually full charge of the child's education and training and welfare. About the best that we could identify with this practice would be sending your child off to boarding school and turning them over to the complete care and guardianship of somebody other than you, the parent. So the child was subservient to them and could do nothing without their permission and could go nowhere without their companionship. For all practical purposes, the child did not differ at all from the servant under whom he was being trained. So just as a servant had masters, so did the child. But at the date set by the father, the child's status changed radically. No longer simply an heir du jour, but he would become an heir de facto. He was no longer a child or like a servant, but a responsible adult and a citizen. So the illustration is this. The child is under control of the law. Now, the law is a little bit of an overgeneralization because of what this is being applied to. Paul uses this very understandable illustration to communicate spiritual truth to his audience. And this is what we find in verse 3. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things 
of the world. So in a similar way, so also we, while we were under the law as unbelieving children, we were held in bondage. What is it we were held in bondage to? We were held in bondage to the law. Paul goes on to explain that with a little bit different terminology, and he uses the word elemental things. So for an unbeliever, there is potential salvation and fulfillment of the promise given to all the world through Abraham, all the way back in Genesis 12 through 3, 3, but unless and until he spiritually comes of age through saving faith in Christ, Every unbeliever is a kind of slave and is in prison under the elemental things of the world, which Paul would later explain as the law. So this word, this phrase, elemental things, is from the Greek word stoikikon, which has the root meaning of row or rank and signifies foundational and rudimentary Orderliness. That doesn't mean a lot to you and I, except for the way it gets explained and applied. Paul does not specify what elemental things of the world represent. And so Bible scholars differ on the best way for us to understand that. Some think it refers to the demon spirits who rule the present world system, which is potentially true. Others say it refers, refers to stars and therefore pagan systems of astrology. And that could also be true because of the very pagan culture that Paul is writing to. Still, others believe that it refers to the basic elemental things of human religion, and that interpretation seems most likely based upon its context, especially as this passage continues in chapter 4, verse 9, which uses the same phrase in connection with the ceremonial rituals of human religion. Here's what it says in Galatians 4, 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the elemental worthless, excuse me, how is it you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? So Paul has used the illustration of a child under the control of guardians until a date set by his father to communicate how we all are under the control of the law until the date set by our Father, which underscores God's sovereign rule, resulting in the realization of sonship. Paul now goes on to explain this illustration in spiritual terms, and it is in our spiritual sonship, it is rooted in the Son, capital S, referring to God's one and only Son, Jesus, of whom he references here, beginning at verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So the source of divine sonship is the true Son, Jesus Christ, just as a human father in ancient times set the time of his son's coming of age, so did God the Father set the time to send forth his incarnate son to the earth 
as man's redeemer. It was in the fullness of the time that Jesus Christ came exactly how and exactly when the Father had established. And so Paul uses the phrase here, the fullness of time, which refers to the completion of the period of preparation and God's sovereign timetable of redemption. As we think about God's eternal plan of redemption, we are to understand it this way. In eternity past, before there ever was a world, before there ever was a need for redemption, God set the date that His Son was going to come. This is what it talks about in the fullness of time. So God had set the date in eternity past. And as history and as life in the world God created unfolded, we came to the point that God had set in eternity past where He was going to send His Son. And when was that date? It's right there. It's right there in the coming of Jesus through the virgin birth to Mary and Joseph, to the very particular period of Jewish history and culture and religion and man's experience, the fullness of time had come. All that God's law was ever going to accomplish in identifying to the people of this world how utterly impossible it was for us to fulfill the requirement of the law The time had come and God has sent His Son in the exact manner that He prescribed all the way in eternity past. Some people look at the birth of Christ to this teenage couple who would give birth in a stable and they would go, wow, that's pretty unfortunate. How unfitting. How uncharacteristic. Perhaps did we miss something? Not a thing. It was exactly how, it was exactly when the Father had decreed in eternity past, just as a human father would set the date of their child, their son's coming of age. When God sent forth His Son, He provided the righteousness for man that man could not provide or produce in himself. That he was born of a woman refers to his complete humanity. The inexplainable mystery of the God man, fully God and fully man. How does the human finite man fully understand this divine spiritual truth? You can't. You accept it by faith. Jesus was fully man born of woman like all other men, yet he was also fully God. Otherwise, he could not have been Savior of the world. He had to be fully God in order for his sacrifice, listen, in order for his sacrifice to have the infinite worth necessary to atone for the sin of mankind. You see, this is why the sacrifice of a pure, unblemished animal is satisfactory, but it's insufficient. It never will meet the infinite worth of God giving Himself for our sacrifice so that we can become the sons 
of the Most High God. Jesus not only came to earth as a man, but was born under the same law as man. Paul would expand upon this in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, creating righteousness, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in Himself, in His death, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So like every other man, Jesus was born under the law, and like every other Jew, He was under obligation to obey and be judged by conformity to God's written law in the Old Testament. But like every other Jew, and unlike any other man, He satisfied the requirements of that law by living in perfect obedience to it. What we could not do, He did. What we could not accomplish, He did. What we could never garner for ourselves, He gave to us in His death on the cross, which, not, which completed the plan of redemption set in eternity past, right there in the manger. Because he lived in perfect obedience, he was able to redeem all other men who were under the law, but not obedient to it, provided they had saving faith in him. So the Son, who is the source of sonship, the Son is the one who redeems. Verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Redeem means, hmm, redeem means to buy out or buy back and was used of slaves whose freedom had been purchased. Through payment of the required price, slaves were redeemed and became free men. And more than that, they received adoption as sons into the household, which then completed their complete liberation. Think of that. Think of being a slave or a servant and your master redeeming you and adopting you into his family and making your liberation, your freedom complete. You see, he not only redeems, but he also adopts. The word adoption is a combination of two Greek words. One means a son, and the other means a placing. It refers to a man giving the status of sonship to someone who is not his natural child. It is looking on this child, and it is a placing of my name upon you who do not biologically belong to me. It's the same thing that God has done. God has given to us a spiritual adoption through His Son and has completely liberated us from our bondage under the law. Because men are not naturally the children of God, they can become His sons only by divine adoption. 
In the Roman world, adoption was an honored custom that gave special dignity and family membership to those who were not born into a family. Often, a wealthy, childless man would adopt a young servant and would trade his slavery for sonship and give to him all of the associated privileges. The servant who was adopted had zero to do with that name being applied to him. It was all done by the prerogative and the privilege of the father. The son who redeems and adopts provides for our sonship. Verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of a son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God confirms believers as His adopted sons through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of His very Son. We not only have the knowledge of sonship through the truth of God's words in our minds, but we have the very essence of sonship through His indwelling Spirit in our hearts. A human father cannot give his own nature to an adopted child, but God can, God can and does give us His nature by sending the Holy Spirit to dwell within the hearts of believers. Think about that. God gives to us His nature, the capacity to be righteous, to be holy, to love, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And so one of the ministries of the Spirit to the sons of God is to enable us with full confidence to cry out to Him, Abba, Father. Paul would expand upon this in Romans 8, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God in that Word Abba, Father, is is a term of endearment used in the Arab world, and it translates as Daddy or Papa. We don't call Him God Almighty. We don't call Him the Most High God. We don't call Him the Most High Being, although He is all of those things. We have the privilege, as the adopted children of God, to call Him Papa or daddy, or whatever it was your little child would call you before he could clearly articulate your name. That's what we call God. That's the privilege that we have as the adopted children of God is to climb up in His lap and to call out to Him with full confidence, Papa. The Holy Spirit brings us into a personal, intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father with whom we we may approach at any time and under any circumstance knowing that He always hears us, He always cares for us because we belong to Him. The fact that a believer has an intimate relationship with God and can confidently cry out, 
to Him as Father is a beautiful and it is a magnificent proof of our sonship. Those who have the status of divine sonship through the Son also have the essence and the assurance of it through the Spirit who draws us into intimate communion with our Heavenly Father. Our adoption and our sonship makes us heirs. Verse 7, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, if... I'm sorry, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So the ultimate outcome of our relationship is inheritance of the father's estate. All that belongs to the son has been given to us as joint heirs with Christ. In the spiritual realm, a person who believes in Jesus is no longer under the law, and is no longer a slave, but we are now sons. And if a son, then we are the heirs of Jesus Christ. Just as in the ancient laws of adoption, so it is in the family of God, sonship means heirship. Because believers are God's children, they are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And my friend, I would submit to you that that is an incomprehensible truth That by giving ourselves to Jesus Christ through faith, God gives to us everything the Son possesses. You see, that is the gift of Christmas. That gift of sonship is what the manger is all about. The joy of Christmas is independent from anything that you have given or anything that you have received from another human being because it can never do for us what we so desperately need it to do. And that is to free us from the bondage of sin and give to us the ability to know God as our Father. Here's what I would submit to you today. You could gather around a stick in your living room with not a gift to give, with not a gift to receive, with not a person to share the moment with, and you could still be filled with joy because you belong to Him. That is what Christmas is all about. And that is why it is so important that we constantly remind ourselves of the real reason for the season. If you take Christ out of Christmas, you don't have anything. You've got mass materialism, and that's not what we know, and that's not our experience. Paul and Steve, would you come down real quick?